Hello everyone. Today's lesson is a continuation of the discussion begun in episode number 14. So, in this 15th episode in our multi-part series involving a thorough consideration of the 18th chapter of the Book of the Revelation, we will focus primarily on some of the more ridiculous thinking and teachings, heresies and doctrines of demons, being circulated and pandered by the likes of this nation's prominent, fat-cat Pentecostals. I am Erica and it is my good pleasure to lead in this study, taken from the book Judgment Day, Volume 1. Prelude to Armageddon, Part 1. The United States of America in Bible Prophecy, the author being Mr. Alvin Mitchell. Pentecostal Teachings Those Lying Holiness Preachers the following is meant to convey some of the wrong doctrine coming out of the TBN and Daystar broadcast networks, which spiritually adversely, negatively affects the lives of, not just the 600 million Pentecostals, they claim, but other truth-seekers all around the world, daily, most of whom will rarely if ever get equal exposure to more wholesome Bible teaching, in light of the TBN, Daystar domination of the airwaves. Marcus Lamb, Founder, President of Daystar during the week of the Daystar, Sherathon, last day or so of September, first days of October, to raise money for who knows what, the late Mr. Lamb, who died November 30, 2021, made the following comment, by inference, where one sees a ministry that is broke, run down, in debt, can't pay their bills, that is proof that God is not blessing them, in which case the Christians' money should be funneled to ministries like Daystar fastest-growing Christian TV ministry in the world. In so many words, God poo-poos and blows off poor ministries. Apparently, Mr. Lamb never read God's message to the church at Smyrna, or Paul's concern for the poor and impoverished Jews at Jerusalem, during his day. God does not in any wise despise or frown upon the poor, fledgling ministry, certainly not in favor of one that is affluent and yet apostate. Jesus, exhibiting the mind of the Father, hated the wealth-mongering, inconsiderate scribes, Pharisees and the Sadducees. On the other hand the scriptures say, per Solomon in the Proverbs, he who is considerate of the poor, lends to the Lord. On that account, God will bless that one. Nasser Sadiq, Muslim-turned-Pentecostal. This man's story of his conversion from Islam to the Pentecostal perversion of Christianity, is fairly remarkable. He is a great and charismatic speaker. He follows, however, typical and traditional holiness protocol of randomly perverting scripture to fit his objectives and ambitions. Toward that end, in an appearance with Marcus Lamb, Daystar Share Athon, September 28, 06, Mr. Sadik made a statement to the affect that, God will not bless small giving. In so saying, he made God a liar, as he totally ignored the widow's might, Luke chapter 21 verses 2 to 4, followed by our Lord's expression of supreme pleasure at the sight of her heartfelt giving. She gave all of what little she had, out of her deep need, against the backdrop of the big spenders, who could perhaps have given more. In addition, Mr. Sadik showed his ignorance of scripture, smart guy that he is, when he ignored Jesus' sincere expression of appreciation for the service of the two faithful churches at Smyrna and Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 11, 3, 7 to 13, each of whom labored faithfully in the midst of biting poverty and serious want. Both his comments and those of Mr. Lamb Square, somewhat, with those of Kathy Dollar, August 30, 06, wife of Creflo Dollar, Daystar, 
who somehow feels that the scriptures teach that poverty in the physical realm equals or spells a problem in the spiritual realm of a person's life. She is, of course, as shown, quite wrong in her thinking and handling of the Word of God. Gintezin Franklin, TBN regular from Gainesville, Georgia, in his sermon titled The Power of Sacrifice, aired on TBN, August 2606, Mr. Franklin let it be known that, God only blesses, with protection from harm, danger and loss, in response to a sacrifice on, the altar, using Job and Eli as his examples. In so many words, God's protection and blessing can and must be bought. Job lost all of his possessions, and kids because Satan killed all of his cattle, so that he could no longer give his usual sacrifice, in which case, therefore, God's, hedge of protection, was down. In so many words, per Mr. Franklin, God therefore, refused to protect Job, because he could not give an offering. Ridiculous! It was God himself who gave Satan permission, with certain constraints, to act against Job while he was yet rich and prosperous, and therefore, well able to afford the usual, hedge of protection. Moreover, Job did not invent his own wealth, rather it was God who enabled him to prosper. God removed his hand of protection at a time when Job was yet strong and healthy. Moreover, given that Job at the time of his healing was near bankruptcy, how does one account for the restoration of this, hedge of protection, if a sacrifice on an altar was required, when in fact there was none? Note that God affected Job's healing, the restoration of his prosperity, and his protection, by staying the hand of Satan and any further harm he could cause all before Job was able to do anything for himself. He did not pay the ransom of a sacrifice, first, to buy back from God, what God had allowed to be taken in the first place. The idea and theology espoused, embraced and spread by these types of theologians is such that, God is a despiser of the underprivileged, and a respecter only of the privileged, the successful, those who are the winners in the game of life. The reality is, Nothing could be farther from the truth, as evinced by Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Old Testament prophets. These people, these Pentecostals, are all liars, and their teachings are lies, laced, of course, with truth. Yet, this, and similar doctrine, is spread as dogma and part of the gospel message, all around the world, daily, in the name of Almighty God. The mainline denominations are also guilty of this same kind of exclusionist thinking. Cash-strapped ministries are a sign that God is not blessing, or God is not with the work of that ministry. The poor are a despicable sight, being spiritually challenged. God will not protect those who cannot afford to pay for that protection. Really? The fact is, in God's eyes, the man who has little and is no less righteous, fearing God in the process, is much more to be desired than any who has great riches and yet lives unrighteously. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 16 16 to 8, 19, 17 to 1, 19 to 1, Revelation chapter 2 verses 8 to 11, 3, 7 to 8. Furthermore, it is God's estimation that the man and or ministry who takes upon himself to dishonor, demean, mock or belittle any individual, in any way, simply because that man, woman, or that child is poor, in the end reproaches his maker, the one who made him, Proverbs chapter 15 verse 31. 17 to 5. Finally, it is God's expectation that those who have, rather than looking down upon the poor with condescension, should take notice of him, with pity, 
i.e., by giving a helping hand. In so doing, the one showing mercy to the poor, actually lends to the Lord himself. That is, God obligates himself to the giver. It should be noted here that, giver is not merely one who gives so as to prompt God to respond in his favor. Actually, he is the one who is striving to do the will of God, walking with him daily, ordering his steps and life accordingly, so that he has a, God, kind of genuine concern for the less fortunate. He will repay him, for his kindness, Proverbs chapter 19 verse 17. The psalmist says in song, The man who considers the plight of the poor is blessed of the Lord, so that when his time of trouble comes, God will remember, and thereafter deliver him. Psalm chapter 41 verse 1. In addition, if indeed God has written off the poor because of his poverty-stricken status, is it not strange that, the Apostle Paul appears to have been completely unaware of this when he, for concern over his Jewish brothers at Jerusalem, robbed other churches, so as to relieve their, suffering, pain, and hunger? Juanita Bynum, prophetess, of God? The presence of God will free you to repent, therefore by inference, according to Mrs. Bynum, with Marcus and Joni Lamb, on Daystar, the 1st of October 06, 12.45 p.m. It is not necessary that one, who is unsaved, should be told of, or, taught repentance by another, who is saved, i.e., Christian. In so many words, if God wants a person to repent, God will effectively do the repenting for you. It is his responsibility to effect in the sinner's life what clearly he demands of the sinner. Hogwash! This teaching, of course, runs counter to our Lord's teaching, where Matthew records the first word out of his mouth at the commencement of his ministry as repent. That is, Jesus is here mandating an action that is dependent upon an act of the will, in obedience, on the part of the one receiving the command. His many recorded encounters with unsaved individuals and crowds also highlights the fallacy of her teaching in that clearly none was ever led to repent automatically prior to being instructed of his need to do so. While indeed, some may have expressed faith in him prior to being called to repentance, none was ever left without knowledge of his need to exercise a change of heart, to turn around, walking in a new direction and a newness of light. If the Pharisees now find no cause for condemnation, he said to the accused woman, taken in adultery, neither do I go, but do not sin any more. John chapter 8 verses 1 to 11. Here the implication is crystal clear. The woman had within her the capacity to do as she was told, i.e., she could and was expected to repent in obedience. A common teaching, a lie and a fallacy among evangelicals is such that, whenever God issues a command or directive, one need not ever think that he alone can carry out that directive, as ordered. We cannot do this of ourselves, they say. God begs to differ. The woman was not only expected to comply, she was given a command, but no more strength than she had already the Holy Spirit had not yet come, you see. Furthermore, insofar as all scripture is written for our education and our profit, etc., consider God's dealing with his Old Testament people. The law was burdensome so that, no one could ever keep it, alone, and expect to be made righteous in the eyes of God. On the other hand, it was fully anticipated that they could perform all of the law's demands, whereupon they could maintain a right standing with their Lord. 
King David was severely punished for his indiscretion in the matter of Uriah and Bathsheba signifying clearly that it was expected that he could easily have said no to temptation both to commit adultery and to commit murder to cover it up. Similarly, King Solomon is now roasting in hell because he refused to say no to his lust for foreign pagan women and their eventually successful lure by which he was dragged into eternal damnation, from which he refused to repent. Jesus said that he and the Father were, one. His reference of course, being to, oneness, of mind, purpose, goal, in total agreement relative to every aspect of his person, being and mission thus his physical presence as the Son of God, represented, to a degree, the, presence, of the invisible, spirit God, with respect to actual person and being, however, they were in fact not one, but two separate, distinct individuals. Yet, no one was ever led to, repent, simply because of his presence. Moreover, Acts chapter 17 verse 30 makes it clear that, in the economy of God, there is no anticipation as that repentance should ever be automatic either before or after salvation. Hence, Paul observes that, God has issued a command that all men everywhere should repent. Therefore, the final decision is yours. You always have a choice to make. God will never deprive you of that privilege. He will not barge in nor will he come into your life and force you to do what he commanded you to do, and by implication, clearly infers that you are more than capable of doing. The expected response in obedience is always purely, initially, an act of the will. The sinner's will, that is, not God's. Although every saint has within him the Holy Spirit of God to assist, at no point does the Spirit ever take over the saint's will or negate the Christian's responsibility to initiate the act of obedience. A conscious decision has to be made, on the part of the saint, to obey. Speaking of imputed righteousness, as developed by Paul, the Apostle, in his Epistle to the Romans, Romans chapter 4 verse 11 minus 5 to 13. See also James chapter 2 verse 23. Mrs. Bynum once more flashed her ignorance when she inferred that because Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to us, it therefore follows that we are able of ourselves to know wrong, as God sees it, and to do right, to the point of pleasing God. No one has to, tell, or teach, you to do right, or what is wrong, she told her hearers, literally around the world. There is no need for one Christian to try to, correct, another, she said. Correcting people makes them do worse. This lying prophetess stated unequivocally, not necessarily in those exact words. In so stating, she does, of course, supplant the word of God, by her tradition, thereby making him a liar not unlike her male colleagues. In addition, imputed, righteousness means that you have no righteousness of your own. Rather, you have only a credit to your heavenly account, based upon someone else's righteousness that someone being Jesus Christ. All, or most, of the New Testament epistles were corrective measures, written to churches, people of God, Christians, that needed to be told of their need for correction, calling them to repentance. The same is true of the letters addressed to the seven churches of Asia Minor, by the Lord Himself, in the book of the Revelation. The messages of the epistles and of the Revelation must be interpreted and applied in light of the Gospel, not in spite of it. In either case, the individuals of all of those churches had become desensitized to the letting of the Holy Spirit. Having quenched his presence, they no longer responded to his grieving. They were, therefore, told of their wrongs, and they were expected to respond accordingly.
at no point ever, were any of those churches or the saints in them informed of, or offered, any more enablement than they already possessed. Having been told and thereby made aware of their error, thus their condition, they not only could, but were to make the necessary adjustments, themselves, through repentance. The Holy Spirit would convict and assist, but, he would, and he will never usurp. God did not do the repenting for them. He did not coerce them to act against their will, or their natural inclination. He gave them no strength beyond what they already possessed, the inference being clearly, as was true of the adulterous woman, such as they had was more than adequate to demonstrate and to affect a readiness and a willingness to obey. Relative to the subject of imputed righteousness, the reality is, righteousness by imputation is merely a way of looking at the saint, by God, a way of accounting for his standing in the eyes of the Father, from the time of his salvation, or acceptance of the Son as Saviour and Lord. In and of itself, i.e., of the saint's own merit, that righteousness does not exist, in fact. That is, given that, we have all, like sheep gone astray, and all our righteousness is like a woman's filthy menstrual cloth. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6, and, dot all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, there is none among us who is righteous, not even one. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 to 12, 23, and though we are all sinners saved by His grace, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9, we reside yet in a condition such that we cannot stand in the presence of God on our own. Our flesh is yet sinful, on which account we cannot abide the presence of a holy and just God. We must for this reason have an actual impartation of a righteousness that only Christ can give. We stand before God now, righteous, only as we stand behind and in the light of Christ, who is an advocate, on our behalf. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. That advocate is himself our high priest in the heavenlies. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 to 2, 8 to 1. We must have a righteousness, however, one which can never be earned, nor can it ever be the product of our self effort. Isaiah assures us that whatever we do under the banner of righteous comes up looking like a filthy rag, in God's estimation. That is, a woman's filthy menstruation cloth. The only recourse, then, is that someone else's righteousness be accorded to us. That is the thing that no saint can ever do, no Christian will ever, of himself do enough good works to make himself righteous before God. Like Abraham, whose belief and trust in God was accounted to him as righteousness, so it is with us. It is our faith, trust, and confidence in the shed blood of the Lamb, spilt as an atonement, a covering, for our sinfulness, which has purchased for us this requisite imputed righteousness, to which Mrs. Bynum referred. That imputed righteousness does not make us sin-free indeed any more than Abraham was deemed to be sin-free, in light of his imputed righteousness, nor does it mean we have the power to do rightly, to the point of acceptability, certainly not without instruction, and or correction. Rather, it is only a debit to an account otherwise subject to credit, due to the burden of indebtedness, for the cost of sin is death, Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Thus, when God sees us, he sees us only through that imputed righteousness, which is the righteousness of his only born Son. It is, furthermore, a righteousness to which alone he among men can attain. Given that he is our advocate and high priest before God, he is also the propitiation, expiation, appeasement, or atonement for all our sins.
At no point can we in this lifetime ever expect to possess that kind of righteousness, or right standing before God this by virtue of the fact that in this life, we can never truly be free from our sins and or sinful nature, except by imputation or divine reckoning. After the resurrection, rapture and return with Christ at Armageddon, the tables will have been turned. Then we will actually possess the exact same righteousness as He. That is, His, imputed righteousness, now, being temporary, will for us be an, imparted righteousness, then, being permanent, ours to keep for all eternity. At that time, we will be able to stand before both the Son and the Father, without fear or harm. Revelation chapter 19 verses 4 to 10, 22 to 4. Thus, we see then, that this holiness prophetess was dead wrong in her assertion regarding, imputed, righteousness. Moreover, in contradistinction to Mrs. Bynum's erroneous perspective, Paul writes to young Timothy, but you are to continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing of whom you have learned, and that from a child you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All holy writ is God-breathed, helpful or advantageous for instruction, for conviction, admonition, for straightening up again, i.e., for rectification or correction, and reformation, for education and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be complete, or fresh, fully equipped to do all good works, 2 Timothy 3 14 17. That is, Paul's coaching of his son in the faith is such that, not only he but, all saints not only benefit but should seek the instruction, correction, reformation, i.e., the straightening up again, afforded by perusal of the whole Word of God, the Bible, complete with all of its applicable, do's, and, don'ts, so despised by the likes of Mrs. Juanita Bynum. Doing the right thing is not automatic, contingent upon one's faith. African Preacher. Once more, Mrs. Bynum is catapulted to the forefront of doctrinal fallacy, as she was the host of a TBN telecast, September 21, 06, mid-afternoon, in which an African preacher, now a U.S. citizen, if I am not mistaken, was one of the featured guests. One did not get the preacher's name, but does recall that he somehow, for whatever the reason, feels that, it is illegal dot for God to intervene in the affairs of men, except as the church prays, this refrain he was diligent to repeat several times throughout his segment of that telecast. The idea espoused and propagated here seems to be that God needs man's permission to enter and work in his own world in so many words. Man is ultimately greater than God, having authority over him. This is very funny. It seems someone forgot to tell God that it is illegal for him to get involved in the affairs of men, without man's permission. He did not seem to think much of this idea throughout the Old Testament. Indications are, as we have seen throughout this study, that he has no intention of being limited or stayed by this foolish notion at any time in the future. He came at Bethlehem, was birthed and slept in an animal's smelly feeding trough, afterwards to walk and breathe earthly air for thirty years before anyone was any the wiser. Clarence McClendon, Ph.D., TBN Regular When we are robbed or when someone takes our possessions unfairly, God permits us to drop, or set aside our normal spiritual living, mindset, in order to go out and, dot get yo, stuff back. Daystar TV, the 10th of September 06, 3 o'clock a. This is another fine example of Pentecostal determination to force, by twisting, perversion of text, etc., 
whatever it takes, to force Scripture to say what they wanted to say. Young Mr. McClendon based his premonition upon King David's encounter with the Amalekites, 1 Samuel chapter 30, while his flight from incumbent and first king of Israel, Saul, led him to seek refuge among the Philistines. In so doing, as is common among the zealots of the holiness crowds, he completely ignored clear teaching from the lips of our Lord, regarding the Christian's reaction when wronged, and the treatment of one's enemies, Luke chapter 6 verses 27 to 35. The inference of his teaching is, or seems to be, such that, David was somehow unethical in his approach to recovery of all that the raiders had taken, in the eyes of God, and that God sanctioned David's unethical methodology, therefore it is all right for the Christian to do whatever it takes to recover his belongings. Another of Mr. McClendon's errant teachings has to do with the sowing of seed in God's kingdom. Sow a seed, reap a harvest, he says, as when one sows his money down at the local supermarket, and walks out with his groceries. In so many words, as soon as one gives to a particular cause, like TBN or Daystar, in service to the kingdom of God, he can, effectively, buy a return on his investment, right there, on the spot. In addition, as is the case with all Pentecostals and Charismatics of whatever persuasion, God is a cosmic wholesaler of miracles. Biblically, a miracle is an uncommon occurrence orchestrated and brought on, or, executed directly or indirectly, through some mediator, be it angel or man by an act of empowerment from God. He has one for everybody, they all teach. Yet, no such teaching as this or any of the other false doctrine being circulated by this, or any of these ministers, is to be found anywhere in Scripture, OT or NT. While he of his own volition promises to do nothing among men except as he first heralds his intent through his prophets, that decision is strictly a matter of divine prerogative, not an issue of legality. Pastor Richard Hogue, City Church, OKC, OK. One did not write down the date, but if recollection serves correctly, this Pastor Hogue was on Daystar, maybe TBN, during the week of the Daystar share a thon. He has a way of turning up on either side of the ledger, quite frequently. In keeping with common practice among Pentecostals, Mr. Hogue is among those who always seem to know exactly what God is thinking, what he is going to do, or what he is about to do. It would be very interesting to know the percentage, or see just how much of this type of prognosticating ever comes to pass. According to him, God is moving the churches into a new direction, as people today do not want knowledge or information. One supposes that he means information of the Bible sort, etc., as rather, they want demonstration. The inference, contrary to the Word of God, is that, God is now headed into the business of responding to people's demands and wants. Doing things purely according to people's expectation. Thus, God, per Mr. Hogue, is today in the business of rendering the teaching of his own holy word obsolete. He now jumps through hoops of reason, at man's beck and call, being effectively a slave to the will of the people, like a modern-day genie in a bottle. Strangely, there may well be some truth in Mr. Hogue's words, nonetheless, not according to his inference. I Timothy 4, 1-3, 2 Timothy 3, 1-7, 4, 1-4, 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1-3, Acts chapter 20 verses 27-30, Jude, 4-19. Pastor Hogue also distinguished himself as one of those champions of the notion such that, 
all roads lead to God. Thus, in that vein, he issued a plea, calling for all churches to quit examining each other's teachings, or something along those lines, coming together instead with, and in spite of their differences. Again, this errant pastor and his doctrine, finds himself contrary to, and therefore at odds with, the Lord of all glory himself, effectively making him and his apostles liars. Beware of false prophets did who you will know by their fruits, works, lives, teachings. Jesus taught, is a command to be on guard at all times, not just for other religions, but equally if not more so for those that masquerade under a banner of Christianity, claiming to be followers of Christ, and servants of God. John the Apostle, having of course, sat at his feet, echoes this sentiment when he advises his converts, believe not every spirit, but try. Test, examine, the spirits, based upon their lives, their doctrine, their teaching, etc. Paul, who was an apostle, also gives strong encouragement to the saints at Corinth to be ever vigilant in their stand, and guard against the encroachment of false apostles, preachers and teachers, all working from within, and under the colors of the church. They always come looking like, having the appeal and feel, of the real deal. Because Satan is able to disguise himself as an angel of light, Paul says, it goes without saying, and, therefore should come as no surprise that, his human emissaries and servants are capable of doing likewise. Paul also says that some even teach the gospel in truth, to a degree, albeit, for their own personal enrichment, not caring, in the final analysis, about the well-being of the saints, or churches over which they preside. The message in all of these injunctions is ultimately not just to the rank-and-file saint, as rather it is equally one to the minister, pastor, teacher, preachers, prophets, and what not, with regard to their mindset, in light of their knowledge and understanding of the saints' imminent spiritual danger. Not only are they to warn and instruct their congregations so as to know that not everything marked Christian is in fact Christian, but they are as well to position themselves, living in such a manner so as to be open and transparent in all their dealings, in church and out. Like ducks or other wild game birds in the sights of the hunter, these ministers and ministry organizations are to jump up at the opportune time, shouting, squawking, and fluttering out the announcement open season, as they lay themselves bare as it were, in plain view, inviting all to examine both them, their lives and their teachings, against the background of the word of the living God. In so doing, the true believers and churches can and will short-circuit and control, minimize the level of influence and the amount of damage inflicted by the ever-present false preacher and teacher in their midst, who, of course, does not want to be seen for who, or what he is. Thus, we must conclude then, that Mr. Hoag's advice to the 600 million or so Pentecostal viewers is but one more cover and a smokescreen for his own false works and the works of those like him. Whatever direction God is leading, one may be fully assured that he will lead no saint in any new direction that in any way, to any degree minimizes the need for the teaching of his word, the Bible. On the other hand, to the degree that the churches today will not submit to sound teaching and doctrine from the Bible, to the same degree Mr. Hogue may well have a point. God has promised that the day will come when, because of the hardness of hearts of the saints, he, himself personally, will give them over to the seduction of lying spirits so that they, while playing church, will be thoroughly deceived and irretrievably misled, per 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 11-12. In the end, they will be lost and thrown temporarily into the pits of hell, 
and from there, into the lake of fire, eternally. Pastor O. Allen, with Jesse DePlantis. This gentleman appeared a few days ago with Mr. DePlantis, on TBN, October 2606, at 3.30 p.m. As this preacher waits expectantly for God to react to his faith, for a new supersized worship center to be built, he has meanwhile twisted Jesus' parable of the unprofitable servant in Luke chapter 17 verses 7 to 10 to be a reference to God as a servant waiting to respond to our faith. The fact is, however, that the parable is meant, and only meant, to set forth an example of the attitude, one of humility, that all Christians are to exercise, in the presence of God, when he has performed any service for the kingdom, for which he might otherwise, in a spirit of worldliness, expect high honors, or praise. Rather, Jesus says, when you have done everything that is commanded, and therefore expected and required of you, say to yourself, I am as an unprofitable servant, having done only that which was my duty to do. Luke chapter 17 verse 10. This exhortation, of course, goes against the grain, in today's culture, which is literally teeming with presumed great men and women of God, seeking to be recognized and rewarded now, by all, for their every accomplishment, their much-flaunted successes, and their often overstated achievements. They have their reward, the Lord assures. Woe, grief and affliction, to you when all men speak well of you. Luke chapter 6 verse 26. Other. Whereas TBN appears to have given the boot to some of its own, like Randy Morris, they have on the other hand added an air of legitimacy to their otherwise foul lineup by inviting in the likes of Adrian Rogers, D. James Kennedy, ministers from the Calvary Chapel movement, and others, Baptists, Presbyterians, Catholics, etc., with whom they might otherwise have found themselves at odds. Mr. Morris publicly disdained the idea of association with Christians of lesser intellectual and socioeconomic status than himself, his preference being those who can make him stretch more than anyone whom he might help to stretch. God only knows where mankind might be now. Had the man from Galilee thought and felt that way toward the fledgling, often doubting twelve. Ironically, contrary to scripture, all of these and similar types of modern-day prophets and soothsayers love to give the impression that they have direct, private lines to the Father, Son's thrones. They tend to think of themselves as modern versions of yesteryear's OT prophets randomly communing with God, at will. Contrary to clear biblical statement, while in the past God spoke to men via his prophets and seers at various times and in diverse ways he has in these last days said all he has to say to men through his Son, who is the word of the living God and by whom everything that is made was made. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 to 2. These men and women are a never-ending cesspool of hell-spun communiques of lies, zealously and relentlessly passed off as from on high, ranging from the outright ridiculous, to the utterly absurd. As they siphon pledges of support from the foolish who make up the 600 million or so rank-and-file Pentecostals across the globe, whose chief interest is always health, wealth and prosperity. They ignore plainly stated scripture that the saint is to be taught never to pledge, but simply to let a simple, yes, or, no, suffice, with regard to future intentions or ambitions. Proverbs chapter 6 verses 1 to 5. 11 15. 17 18. 20 16. 22 26. 27. Do not be among those who make pledges, nor of those who are surety making yourselves and or your possessions guarantee for the debt of others. 
God's expectation is such that everyone should give in accordance as he himself has purposed in his own heart, never with pledges to him, or to anyone else. This idea put forth by the churches in general, as well as by the Pentecostals in particular, such that God himself will tell you how much he wants or whether you should give, or, sow, is a popular fundraising, shenanigan, and a lie straight out of the pit, per the will and word of God. Every man's giving is to be as he has determined in his own heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 7. And so, as with the OT saints, so with these modern-day American churches, together with the parachurch ministries, of radio and TV broadcasts, it might well be said by the Lord of all glory, these folk come before me as my people do and should, but with lip service only. They have hearts that are far from me. They teach and adhere more to the commandments and precepts of men, than to that which pleases God. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13. Matthew chapter 15 verses 7 to 9. Like the Cretans of Paul's day, who were drawn away by the Jewish fables and lies fed to them by the Jews, who themselves professed to be Christians, their works, walks or daily lives deny their professions and testimonies. Titus chapter 1 verse 16. Attentiveness to, and study of the Word of God in these institutions is usually consistently as much shallow, and intentionally without substance, as they are poorly attended, when viewed against the backdrop of substantially higher membership roles, in some cases. In early April 2006, CBS's Evening News' Bob Schieffer aired a series of segments highlighting the fact that there is a growing, prevailing sentiment among American churches of Christians which holds that the Bible as is, and, old-fashioned religion are no longer relevant for the time in which we live. There is in fact some truth and sensibility in this sentiment, given that by and large old-fashioned religion is just that, religion the church's perversion of God's version of the road and the only way of life that leads to reconciliation with himself, and ultimately to life eternal. It is not biblical Christianity. Therefore, these new ideas do nothing more than lead further away from God. Biblical notions of God are outmoded and out of date. Thus, incessantly, proponents of this old-fashioned religion and outdated Bible doctrine are always busy for the Lord, in one activity or the other according to their own ideas and ideology not recognizing or heeding his stern, solemn warning such that no amount of activity or busy-bodiedness, even in his name, will ever suffice as an effective substitute for a heart right with God, based upon a strict adherence to his word. Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 to 14, 15 to 29, and 25, 1 to 46, Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Because they refuse to study, they do not understand that work for the kingdom of heaven must be performed according to God's word, the Bible, John, 15, 1 to 8, not according to our own personal, church, or denominational whims. Given their refusal to hear the word of God, they make themselves easy pickings for the clever, long-winded rip-off artists at institutions like TBN and Daystar. Herein, it might be argued, lies the significance of his assertion. Many are the called, and yet, few will be chosen. Matthew chapter 22 verses 1 to 14. Following Luke's declaration in Acts chapter 17 verse 30. God now commands all men everywhere to repent. Having revealed the fact that he will someday judge the world in righteousness by the man Christ Jesus. Sadly, multitudes living today, active for the Lord per the theological prescriptions of these and similar spiritual charlatans are destined to find out too late that, whereas they figured well among the many called, 
they do not, on the other hand, number at all among the few chosen. In plain view of the straight gate, they will have chosen, instead, the wide gate. Moreover, every Christian should note that the foregoing are not simple, negligible infractions and mistakes, which God is likely to take lightly, in any wise. Nor are the purveyors thereof simple neophytes, in need of simple corrections in their theology. Their work is error-prone, the errors are intentional, as such, that work is therefore, a calculated risk, as they perhaps view Christianity as just another mere religion, an opiate, of the masses, to be milked and exploited to one's own selfish advantage, one might say, to them, there is no God beyond themselves. If there is a God, they seek only to serve themselves, at his expense. He who sits in the heavens, watching, listening, taking it all in day after day, has promised that whatever the appearance, all such and their followers will give a full accounting for all that they have done, and will do in his name. God cannot and will not condone a nation of hypocrites and false prophets, or their followers who give greater deference to their lies and false doctrine, than to his word, the Bible. Therein lies all the more reason why we should, each and every one of us, pay particular heed to Paul's injunction, such that all should ever be diligent to examine ourselves, regularly against the backdrop of the word of the living God, to ascertain that in fact we are in the faith, according to the Bible, absent the commandments of men, denominational, church and or personal twists thereupon. And with that, we come to the end of our discussion of the para-church ministries and the blight they bring to the table, in terms of contributing to an image around the world that quite belies any popular evangelical, fundamentalist thinking that says we are a nation of people with whom God is well pleased, notwithstanding the myriads of blessings He and He alone has bestowed upon us. Please make arrangements to be with us for episode number 16 of this podcast, when we will cap this edition of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass by examining the Pentecostals' once much-touted movie venture, One Night with the King, for such a time as this. Until we can get together again, I pray God will bless you richly. Amen.